Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this evening. We thank you for your love to us, for a beautiful camp, for a beautiful people, for a beautiful time of fellowship. We thank you for the time now to gather in your word. Thank you for the many um, zealous and enthusiastic hearts that poured out this evening in the teen choir program. We pray that this will continue to be the theme for their life, that they would sing praises to your name. Bless us now as we look into your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been in different thoughts on what to talk about, but I was reminded of the theme by him. And uh, I'd like to talk on another theme, but also containing two words, and we'll get to them in a minute. I'm going to start with a real-life scenario that occurred, and I'm going to build up, and in your mind you're going to probably catch on what I'm talking about, but it's a real, true story. It was... Christmas Day, 2004, beautiful sunshine, beautiful sunny day, the kids were playing on the beach, parents were taking pictures of their kids and videos, and others were planning what they're going to do for the rest of the time that they spent on vacation. Are they going to spend it at the pool? They're going to take a speedboat, go around the islands. And, um, you know, I grew up in Australia. Christmas time was a warm time. It was hot. I used to sell watermelons by the side of the road, try to make some money so I can go to the beach, for example. And uh, this, era, this uh, scenario sort of evolved in an area in the Indian Ocean. The next day, Boxing Day, do you have that in, Amer in America, Boxing Day? Yeah, I, I guess so. I'm not sure some of the holidays are different. <laughs> in Canada we do, I know that. But Boxing Day, I I the next day, is after Christmas. So I think they call it Boxing Day, not because they box, but because they pack up all their boxes and clean up for next year. Boxing Day, same thing, beautiful, glorious morning. Uh, some of the comments that came were, it was like heaven, it was like paradise. And they're taking pictures and all of a sudden, as they're taking pictures, the wife is standing in the water and, and the water is, in 20 seconds has travelled about three metres. Something was funny going on. A family was snorkeling, watching beautiful coloured fish. And all of a sudden the fish disappeared. An older couple was walking up the beach and the tide just suddenly rose. Within minutes, people on the shore who had a better vantage point were screaming out 
to the people on the beach, quick, run, get out of the way, hurry up. Think you know what I'm talking about? Within minutes, what appeared to one of the photographers or tourists was the perfect wave, a white foaming crest that perhaps surfers would dream of turned out to be a 15 to 20 minute to 20 meter tidal wave. It was what was called in Japanese tsunami. And in Japanese that literally means harbor wave. A wave that comes into the harbor. That's H-A-R-B-O-U-R in Canada, no U in the States. Australians just say harbour. Within minutes, there were screams for people to come running in. And even though there were screams for people to come running in, there were people just standing there and watching. And these things were caught on people's individual cameras, whether they were your mobiles or video cameras that were actually caught and made and pieced the whole evolving event of this cataclysm that occurred just southwest of Indonesia. You see, there was an earthquake that morning, 45 miles away from the tip of Indonesia in a place called Banda Aceh. And 40 minutes from the time of that earthquake, the first wave had come in and people were caught off guard. And in with this surge had come the wave and had started sweeping all the, the, the beach umbrellas and the floats and the boats and, and everything else that it could take in its path so that within a few minutes of that warning, people were scurrying up the street, climbing up poles, running to their hotels, those that had the fortune of booking hotels, into the restaurants, and this whole thing had just surged upon them without warning, at least so it seems. As the tide grew, it took with it cars and refrigerators and debris and, and knocking down um, structures and boats coming in, topsy-turvy, people grabbing onto rails. There was one man that went, reached out to a, an elderly, elderly couple that were trying to scurry up on top of some railing, and he was so high he wasn't sure. He came closer within two meters, and the flood wiped them away. The power of the surge, the power of the water, within minutes... Within about 15 minutes, this tidal wave had reached Thailand, islands in between. By the time everything was said and done, over and out, 250,000 lives were lost in 14 countries. 167,000 lives were lost in Indonesia alone. 8,000 in Thailand. 8,000 in Sri Lanka, 1,000 miles away. Or was it kilometers? I forget. 
within two hours, 250,000 people were dead. You say, why are you telling me this? The chapter that I want to read from is the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. The book of Ephesians, chapter 2. <clears throat> and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in time past, in lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath as others. Now this is contained in these four verses is what brought to mind this, this picture of the tsunami. Because this picture not only gives me a picture of the world we live in and how we as human beings have been caught into this, as it says, that we were walking according to the course of this world. And that course I picture as a water course or a river or a torrent or a tsunami coming in to the streets of Banda Aceh and uh, Phuket in Thailand and Kiki, whatever it was, the island that, that it, it swamped. Not only was this water coming in this course and dragging everything with it, but it, it is also a picture to me of the judgment of God on sin. Because it says, upon them they were called the children of wrath. And you know, you don't have to wait for judgment day to be a child of wrath. God's wrath is manifested or shown to us in many different ways. You don't have to wait to the day of the Lord before that happens. God judged people in the Old Testament in many ways. Can you think of a similar situation in the book of Genesis? Noah, the ark, the deluge that flooded the world. You know, in my mind it was hard for me to picture how within 40 days and, and, and 40 nights the, the waters could rise and fill and cover the earth. But when I saw pictures of and videos of the tsunami in, in uh, Indonesia and in the Indian Ocean, um, it was much easier for me to picture. And guess what? There was another tsunami. Does anyone remember where that was? Japan, 2011. Seven years later, there was, in northern Japan, there was another earthquake off, offshore and it swept in. You know how high those waves were? <laughs> These were, they say, by estimates, 15 to 20 feet high by the time they came into Indonesia. The ones in Japan were something like 30 meters high. You know how high that is? That's 100 feet, at least. 
that may be 30 feet, 25 feet to the top. It was probably four times that height coming into Japan. It wiped out eight units of a nuclear station. I'm a nuclear engineer. We're doing work now worldwide to make retrofits to nuclear stations to make them more safe because of what happened in Fukushima, Japan that day. So I could easily now much more easily envision how God could bring in a deluge, a flood, a tsunami to wipe out and judge people. And being a child of wrath, you don't have to wait till hellfire. You don't have to wait for judgment day. God can do it today. And I have no doubt in my mind that what happened there was judgment. I have no doubt in my mind that what happened in Indonesia and Fukushima and all the other cataclysms that occurred was there for judgment. And so in this picture, in this metaphor of the tsunami, of the torrent, there is not only the judgment and the wrath of God, but there is also the predicament of sin. Because when we are trapped in sin, when we are in this world, we are trapped in the course of this world. This course is going one way. You know, when, when um, you, there are some uh, movies that have been made since well, of the Japanese tsunami, and you see how uh, the people are just fleeing for the hills, and, and a, a father has seen that he left his daughter behind. He's trying to come back to, to save his daughter, but he can't because the, the stampede coming towards him and he, he just can't make it to his daughter. That's the picture of being stuck in this world that is full of pressure pushing you one way. And, that, and, and, and these tsunamis come in different forms, in different packets. Look, for example, where we have come. Where we have come. At one stage, adultery used to be a, a sin. You would be federally or punished on a, on a state level if you committed adultery. Today it's condoned, it's the normal life. Homosexuality was, was only in the closet and few and far between perhaps. Today it's open and today it's in your face. It's pride. Today, if you make a stand, you're put in prison or you're fined as that woman and the man in Colorado, remember? They made a wedding cake. They were supposed to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. They refused to make it. They were fined how much? $120,000, $200,000? Two years ago, someone refused to provide flowers to a gay wedding. Same thing. They're fighting it in the courts. You can say whatever you want about Jesus Christ. You can say anything you want about God. You can in your face to anybody, but don't touch this human rights. And so the government has legislated, not only Canada, but now North America, that the marriage of a man and a man and a woman and a, and a woman is equivalent to a woman and a man. 
This doesn't come up by itself. This, and this doesn't come up, it's not just somebody's individual um, thoughts or, or d- design or plan. This is done by a system. You see, the God of this world, the prince of this world, the devil, he doesn't um, operate on, just on individuals. He knows that there's far more power in networking, in getting people together all over the world to push, just like the tsunami, to pressure and to push. And the description of the, of the one uh, um, witness on the beach said, this was not a tide that sort of ebbed and flowed, that went in and then went out and then went in and went out. He said he kept on pushing and pushing and pushing until it broke through. Do we realize what kind of a world we're living in? Do we? I'm serious. This is not to scare anyone. I hope it does, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a hoax. And I'm going to give you some more information in case you haven't come across this. This is the kind of world we're living in, young people. And I fear for you. I'm almost 60, 58. But I fear for you. The world that you are entering now is different than the world that I lived in. I want to give you some facts here. Not only is it different from the point of view of how readily sin is available and how much pressure and force has been added to you. Because you have all these electronic devices. You have the internet, you have uh, Wi-Fi, you have your cell phones, you've got your Twitter and Snitter and whatever else you have. You've got all of it. And it's ready here, right in your pocket. Some of you might be surfing the web right now to see if what I'm saying is correct. But this is scary. And some of you say, it doesn't scare me, I'm tough. You know, in 1981, when uh, Iraq, with Hussein at the command, Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait, and then America entered into the, into the fray, and there was all kinds of damage done with bombing and, 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 and uh, artillery. Uh, Iraq responded. They started throwing scuds. You know what a scud is? Rockets over Israel for the first time in... in since 1973, Israel was attacked in that fashion. Uh, scuds were being flown from Iraq, hundreds of miles away, and trying to bomb Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. When I heard that, I said, uh-oh, this is the beginning of the end. The Bible prophesies when Israel is surrounded with armies, you know, this is one sign that the end times here. Within... A few years, uh, the Allies had, had beaten Hussein. They had uh, made him withdraw. And then perhaps uh, 10 years later or 20 years later, I forget, 1991, the second war. Was it 2001? When, when uh, again, uh, what was it called? Shock and awe. The first one was called Desert Storm under Schwarzkopf, General Schwarzkopf. And then the shock and awe where the... Uh, where the uh, CNN newscaster would be standing and listening to the, to the missiles go past his hotel room directed directly for some building 
in Baghdad. He could hear the whiz of the missile going back down the street and just blowing up targets. And you think, that's the end of it. That's the end of it. Good, we've won. The Americans have won. They, they, there's going to be peace. Let me read you something. Some of you may have come across this, but I'm going to ask you a question. What would happen to the uh, USA and Canada if we were overtaken by Islam? Now, this is not a sermon on Islam, but I want to give you something that's real, very possible, and I believe probable. So Islam may not win because with, with artillery, but imagine these are the facts. What would happen if the fertility rate, how quickly families multiply, how many children they have, dropped? If parents only have one child, two sets of parents, they have one child each, these have a child, only one. That means there's four times less grandchildren than grandparents. If one million babies were born in 2015, it's hard to have two million adults entering the workforce in 2035. As a population shrinks, so does the culture. To maintain a culture for 25 years or more, you need at least 2.11 children per family. Now bear with me. This is, not, this is a little detour, but I want to bring a point across. Never has a culture survived with under two children per family, with under 1.9. A rate of 1.3 makes it impossible to reverse. It will take 80 to 100 years to correct itself and there's no economic model that could sustain that kind of a decrease. Listen to this. These are the countries now in Europe, the major countries. France has a, has a, a, a fertility rate of 1.8. On the average, 1.8 children are born. doesn't mean one's born without an arm and one a leg. On the average, if you divide all the families and how many children they have, it's 1.8. England has 1.6, Greece has 1.3, Germany has 1.3, Italy has 1.2, Spain has 1.2. The total average for 31 countries in the European Union is 1.38. In a number of years, Europe will not exist as we know it today. Yet the population is not declining. Why? What do you think is happening? Immigration from other countries. And guess where they're coming from? Islam. The average birth rate per family for the Islamists is 8.1 per family. Now, this is not an anti-Islamic sermon. Don't get me wrong. I'm giving you a picture of what this world may look like in a few years. In southern France, there is perhaps the most number of churches per square mile in the world, and now there are more mosques than churches. 30% of the children are, that are under 21 are Islamic. In larger cities such as Nice, Marseille, and Paris, the number goes up to 45% Islamic. By 2027, one in every five Frenchmen will be Muslim. By 2045... 
I could still live that long if God allows. My mum lived to 94 and her mum lived to 98. But by 2045, France will be an Islamic republic. The UK, in the last 30 years, the Muslim population in the UK rose from 82,000 to 2.5 million. That's an increase of 30-fold. In the Netherlands, Holland, 50% of all newborns are Muslim. In only 15 years, half of their population will be Muslim. In Russia, over 23 million Muslims, one out of every five Russians. 40% of the entire Russian army will be Muslim in a few years. What kind of a world we're living in? Where is Christianity? What's happening to our values? How are the laws going to change? And so forth. Belgium goes the same way. The fall in the German population can no longer be stopped. It is a downward spiral. It is no longer reversible. Germany will be a Muslim state by 2050. This is what... Who remembers uh, Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan president? Remember him? He was killed in battle. The states got him or whoever got him. He said, when he was still alive, that there are signs that Allah, his God, will grant victory to Islam in Europe without swords, without guns, without conquests. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. The 50-plus Muslims in Europe, a million, will turn into a Muslim, or the, yeah, will turn into a Muslim continent within decades. He's right. There are 52 Muslims in Europe, and by 2027, there's projected to be 104 million, which is one-third of the U.S. population approximately now. Closer to home, Canada. Fertility rate is 1.6. The fastest-growing uh, religion in Canada is Islam. Between 2001 and 2006, the population of Canada increased by 1.6 million. 1.2 million were Muslims. USA, same fertility rate. They think the same. With the influx of Latino nations, the rate is 2.11. So the Latin nations are helping that number. In 1970, there were 100,000 Muslims. In 2008, there were 9 million. There was a strategy conference in 2005 uh, in Chicago, the, the transcripts, they transcribed the, the meeting notes and showed in detail their plan to evangelize America through journalism, politics, education. And they said that they have to realize that there's going to be a reality and they know how to deal with this, that within 30 years, that is in 2035, that's 20 years from now, there'll be 50 million Muslims in the USA. Let's say there's only one, there's one percent that are jihadists. That's 500,000 jihadists in the States. Let's say there's 0.1 percent. That's 50,000 jihadists that are willing to, to do what they're doing now, blowing up things, killing people on the streets. Let's say there's 0.01 percent. 5,000. Is that peanuts? Why am I saying this? During the time of Jeremiah, he prophesied that the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. For 40 years he prophesied this. 
and he was rejected and they laughed at him. They mocked him. They even put him in jail. They threw him into a slimy pit. And then 40 years later, as an older man, he realizes his dream or his visions, his prophecies that came from God, that he sees Nebuchadnezzar and his hordes enter Jerusalem. He sees them coming. They're here. What I've been telling you for 40 years, it's here, it's now. When ISIS came on the scene and I saw the horrific scenes and the horrific deeds, and I'm not going to describe them, they're so horrific and demonic. You know what came to my mind? The first thing is, and, and, and I said it from the pulpit in Toronto, I said, we're living in apocalyptic times. We're living in apocalyptic times. The things that we thought Revelation talked about way down in the future is happening now. People are being beheaded. Women, children, men. If you don't convert to, 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 to Islam, you're going to be destroyed or you're going to be enslaved. You're going to be beheaded. And Revelation talks about those that are under the altar that will be beheaded for the name of the Lord. We are facing some incredibly, incredibly difficult times. This is another stream, another part of that tsunami tidal wave that is coming. But you're not quite involved in that. You've just seen that crest on the horizon. It's coming. It doesn't look so bad. You're still waiting to see, is it, what is it? But you heard that there was tremors this morning on the Richter scale, six point whatever or seven. You've heard about it, but you don't believe it. And it's coming closer and people are shouting, not from the hotels and the restaurants, but from the pulpits. And from the homes. Get out! Quick! Something bad's happening. Something's coming towards you. And yeah, it's a beautiful day where I am. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. You hath he quickened, he's speaking to the Ephesian believers, who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. What does that mean, to be dead in trespasses and sins? He says, oh, I, don't feel, I don't feel condemned. I don't feel dead. I, I'm having a good time. I'm enjoying myself. Well, you see, the definition of dead is different perhaps in the definition in your mind. The definition of dead in here. The definition of dead in here is spiritually dead. You know what it means to be spiritually dead? Read Isaiah 59, 1 I think. It says, the arm of the Lord has not been shortened. He's not powerless to save. He says, but your sins have separated you from your God. To be spiritually dead is to be separated from God. 
is to be separated from His blessings, is to be separated from His power, is to be separated from His goodness. As a matter of fact, if you read further on down here in verse uh, 12, it says that in the time, that time, you were without Christ. Without Christ, being aliens or foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant, having no hope and without God in this world. You know that word in Greek is? Without God? Atheos. You were atheists. I was an atheist. Without God. That's what atheist means. See, atheists, they say there is no God, but they really just don't have a God that they belong to, that they, they worship. The atheists. Without Christ, without God, without hope. And when you're in that situation where you have no spiritual life, where your blessings have been withdrawn, where you're separated from God, you have no hope. You have no hope. And he says, you've walked before in this course, in this tsunami. You know what? I want everyone to go away this evening and replace tsunami and apply it to this life, to those that are without Christ, with sinami. A sinami. This world is full of it. And many of you will go home this week from camp and you will have been touched, you would have been moved and, and, and you want to do the right thing but you're afraid because when you get back you're going to go back to schools. And I've heard it so many times, believe me, I've counseled with so many people, you're going to hear it. Again, you know what? I, I'm afraid to go back to school because I know once I, I go back to school they're going to have the pressure from my peers. They're going to want me to do this and do that and watch this and, and join in with that. And, and that's also a pressure. It's pushing you, you and you think you have no hope and it's just dragging you along and you say, oh, I, I can't do it. And so you know what? You give up. So I'll just be dragged. I'll just be pushed. It says here, among whom also we have had our conversation. This, this is not on Facebook. This is not talking and chatting with all your chat lines and social networks. It means among whom we've also had our living, our communications in this life, our way of life. In times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now he's speaking to the Ephesians. They lived in a very ungodly city, Ephesus. Uh, they worshipped Diana, the queen of the Ephesians. They had a temple unto Artemis, which was another uh, name for Diana. And they had all kinds of pagan worship there, prostitution, perhaps uh, sacrifice to, to, to her with blood and so forth. And worshipped anything but the real God that Paul talked about when he went to Mars Hill in Athens. And he says, you were the children of wrath. But this is the verse that turns it all around. When you come to 
a verse or a word that says but. Verse 4 says, but God. These are the two words I want you to remember. You know, we have the theme by him. Think of but God. Think of the reversal. The but is the reversal of the tsunami. The but is the way out. As bleak as that picture may look, there is a way out. It says, but God. It changes everything for you. So that no matter what may come, no matter what cataclysm, no matter what persecution, no matter what disease, God is there. You have nothing to fear if you're in the hands of God. And God is offering for you that today. He's saying, but God. And he's throwing you the lifesaver. He's throwing you, he says, catch it. I'm going to pull you out of this tsunami. That tsunami is filthy, it's dirty, it's full of garbage, rubbish, sewer stuff. I want to save you from that. I want to save you from destruction. And your answer may be, you know what? I don't know if I can hold on. You don't want to grab it because you don't know if you don't you don't know if you're gonna hold on. What choice do you have? Some people say that. I don't know if I will be faithful, so I'm not gonna even grab it. But you're being dragged down. You're being taken over the precipice. And you're going with them. You'd rather be with them than, than risk in taking a chance in committing your life to Jesus Christ. But God, perhaps the two most beautiful words in this chapter, that God can change everything around, that God can make that difference. He can pull you out of the press. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he saved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now quickened is a very archaic term. Back in 1611 when the King James translators decided to translate this, they said quickened. And basically it means uh, to make alive. And anyone heard the term quicksilver? What is quicksilver? Isn't it mercury? It sort of floats. It's, it's not solid. It means to make alive. It's animated. God will animate you. God will put into you life. You know, once I was, in, uh, I was invited to go to um, <coughs> a place to have a funeral service. And uh, some of you have heard this before, so please bear with me. Um, I was invited to go to a place to have a, a funeral service. The woman was 97 years old. Funeral service. So I went, and um, 
while we were waiting for the family to come, I didn't know the family that well. So while we were waiting for the family to come, I, in the foyer of the funeral parlour, I uh, came across this attractive young lady. She was about 30, maybe. She was sitting there, and I thought maybe she was part of the family, because so, I didn't know the family that well. And I said, who are you? And she said, I'm so-and-so. And I said, oh, I'm, so, I'm, I'm here to do the service. Oh, she said, okay. So we got into a conversation. And then I had the funeral service. And I preached on uh, John chapter 11. It was about Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Jesus delays his coming. They say, you better hurry because Lazarus is di- he's sick. He said, oh. he just thought there was lots of time. When he came, he was already dead. And the sisters were mourning and the Jews were mourning and it was a very sad scene. Even Jesus wept. And Jesus, after four days of Lazarus being in the grave, he was, he was dead. And even the Jews said, Lazarus' sister said, why, why are you doing this for? Because he wanted them to roll the stone away. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. They thought he stunk already. And before you know it, Lazarus comes out with his grave clothes and he's walking. Four days in the grave. And I finish the sermon and this young girl gets up. She stands about in the middle, down there, in front of the people. There are about 60 people. And she says to me, I said in a soft voice, can I help you? She says to me, I am now going to raise the dead. I look around. I said, can you please sit down? She said, go ahead, open the lid. I said, can you please sit down? I thought to myself, why does anyone want to raise a 97-year-old woman? See, some people think there's power in that, that there's something really powerful, that you can be a better Christian if you can perform this miracle. But I'll tell you what is even more powerful than raising the physically dead, especially one that's 97 years old. I've got a brother in Australia. haven't seen him probably for... Eight years. He's been living away from the family. He got caught in the tsunami. And he didn't want to stay with the rest of the family. He didn't want to stay in Canada. He didn't want to even come to Canada. So he got a a tourist visa and went back. Because he loved the beach. He loved the paradise. He loved the warm weather. He loved his beer, his friends, his cigarettes. And later on, his drugs. And what I remember him like, the previous visit, when I finally got to him in 2010, he was a completely different man. He had shriveled. He had a pain in his back. He had cracked vertebrae, whatever, however that came. He was on morphine pills. 
he looked dead. Now, God willing, I want to go back again in a week time, two weeks time, next week. If I could see my brother with a new hope, with God in his life, with a purpose for living, with a smile on his face, with joy in his heart, that's what I would call a real miracle. You know, I didn't even know if he was alive. I didn't even know if I was going to meet him there. And I didn't even know if we should even go to Darwin, Australia, because I didn't know if he was alive. The last time I went in 2010, I couldn't find him. He had moved on and there was no sight of him. And I heard, there's a little bit of hope now. I heard from a friend of his that he spotted him somewhere in Darwin about two months ago. And while there is life, there is hope. But to me, the greater miracle will be if I see that even if he lived for five more days, that he could say that Jesus Christ is my Savior, I have accepted his blood as a payment for my sin. And you know what I told him eight years ago? I said, John, no matter what you've done in your life, because I didn't know how long he was going to live. He looked like he could die any time. I said, John, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what, how bad it is, because he was fleeing from the policeman. He ran away from the cops. He hit a cop once. And what else did he do? I said, John, no matter what you've done in your life, ask God for forgiveness Ask him to to cleanse you from your sin. And if he dies with one day to spare, his life would be all worth it, what he's done, no matter how bad he's lived. That is being quickened. That is being made alive. And many of you think because you're still here in the flesh that you're alive that you're having fun, that you're this is this is the fulfilling life you have. You know, when I was a young kid, I watched the movie called Beau Geste. It was about the French Foreign Legion, if any of you know what that was. They were fighting the Turks in northern Africa in Khartoum. And the French Foreign Legion was suffering casualties. And they were dying, and the Turks were coming upon them. And they were losing men quickly. So you know what they did? They took the dead men, and they stuck them in the turrets, and they put guns in their hands, and they looked like they were real soldiers that the Turks were facing just to frighten them off, but they were dead. And many of us think that just because I'm healthy physically, that I've got a good education, that I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, I'm going to do this, that this is the life. But God says you're dead. God says you did. The good news, but God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Don't be atheists. Don't be without God. 
Don't be without Christ. You'll go down a path that will be almost irreversible. And then it'll be too late. The odds are against you. The stream is too strong. The tsunami, the tsunami is too powerful. I plead with you. Accept the Lord and His ways and you'll see the rewards and you'll be able to stand when these big, bigger tides come. You'll be able to withstand the storms. May God bless His word.